My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. My guest for this episode has held more power than most, but has experienced considerable losses of power over two major aspects of his own life, his drinking and his mental health. After rising up the ranks in political journalism, Alistair Campbell earned himself a formidable reputation in British politics as part of Tony Blair's new Labour government, for which he acted as spokesperson, campaign director and press secretary. Stalking that career, though, has been an ongoing battle with depression as well as recovery from alcohol addiction, which hit rock bottom in the mid-80s. Our conversation explores the facets of Alistair's character which have driven him to success and despair in seemingly equal measure. If you want to know more, check out his latest great book, Living Better, which is available now in hardback, ebook, and on Audible. I know it's been a long, 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 long time. In fact, you said you stopped counting at 3,000 days, but I'm just interested. My family is pickled in booze, I would say, from my grandparents and, and before both parents. And, you know, booze is a trigger, obviously, to depression. In the book and also in the articles that I've read, you have covered that you drank heavily, but how bad was it? I mean, I do know on a, that was on a daily basis, but how do you work when you're slurring? Or did you have a great strength? You know, could you take well, a lot of booze? Then, in my 20s, when I was drinking really, really heavily, I don't, if enough, Fiona says this to our kids, you know, she doesn't remember me, apart from once, she doesn't remember me being really, really drunk. I could drink all the time and not seem very drunk. Whereas now, I do I, I do have the, the old glass of wine now, and... I can have two or three, and I'm conscious of my words not being very clear sometimes, uh, and then I stop. Whereas back then, I honestly did seem to have, and maybe this is delusional, I don't know, but other people have said, so for example, one of my closest friends who I quote in the book, Chris Boffey, he's, he's always said, look, I never realised, I didn't think you had a drink problem because I didn't think you drank that much more than everybody else. But actually, I think the thing was that I never seemed drunk but it wasn't unusual for me to be drinking literally all day from, you know, not not from waking up. I never did it waking up. But from 11, yeah, pub open sort of. About 11 o'clock, about 11 o'clock, you know, nipping into the pub, having a quick one, back to the office, out for lunch, drinking clubs in the afternoon, all night, sort of working through beer and then into spirits. And, you know, so uh, I never kind of counted it. But yeah, every day for quite a few years was bad. My missus says, because my mum was was an alcoholic, my dad was an alcoholic, grandfather, not defined as an alcoholic, but, you know, was, was a, yeah. a heavy drinker. And Ellie says that what she thinks is hereditary and is passed on is the capacity. That's the bit that can be passed on. You know, like, like you're just saying, you know, about the ability to drink enormous amounts or, or large amounts comparatively to most people without getting yourself into trouble, you know, coping with booze, you know, rather than the propensity to, to drinking. It's sort of really, interesting really, I mean, idea. I, I, I mean, I don't know about the genetic thing that, that I did, as you say, I did discuss it for the book, but if I think back to... Your dad was a drinker, wasn't he? But you say you didn't think he was an alcoholic. So my dad wasn't. I don't think my dad was an alcoholic, no. But he liked to drink. He did like a drink. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I think it's more to do with the cultures that you were brought up in. So my dad came from the Hebrides. He was really big into the bagpipes and much, I think it's less now, but at the time that I was growing up and learning to play the bagpipes and going to events and competitions with my dad and my brother and so forth, I can just remember it being a really, really big drinking culture. I remember uh, my first experience of a beer tent 
was uh, it's a bagpipe competition and it literally was a tent and it literally was just full of blokes in kilts getting absolutely smashed. And Isn't it your gran who said that she um, she loved the bagpipes but hated the drinking the women? Yeah, yeah. No, my auntie Mary, my, she was married to my dad's brother, and she she's the, the mother of my my cousin who took his own life, who was also a heavy drinker and a piper. And she said that she loved the bagpipes, but she hated the she hated the culture that went with it, and she meant the booze. And then, of it's, course, journalism as well. Journalism was a very very drinking culture. So I think it's more that. I gravitated to those cultures. And then if you think about, you know, I'm a football fan. Well, football was the same. My son, Callum, he's he's a recovering alcoholic. And he can go in pubs and he can go and watch football in pubs with other football fans who are drinking. I can't do that. And it's not because I think I'm going to get, you know, drink and get drunk or anything. I just feel very, very edgy when I'm around it in a way that Callum seems to have, you know, reconciled himself to. He, He still likes that sort of pub atmosphere. But he somehow managed to do it without the drink. I, I could never do that. Maybe Callum also does it. Like my old man used to do it. You know, he's, he was in recovery for 30 years. But he used to meet me in pubs. And, you know, Callum's probably, it's, to, it's almost to show yourself that you can do it. You know, yeah. that you can be yeah. around it. But it's interesting because everything that gives you pleasure that you've been drawn to is the culture of it is steeped in booze, whether it's football or journalism or, you know. And, and for me, growing up with a mum and daddy drank, you know, whiskey to me smells like goodnight kisses you know that's how i see that's how i feel about whiskey when i smell it i can i smell Mm. my dad give me a goodnight kiss so you know my dad was a director my mum was a dancer so being an actor was always a really obvious thing you know an option it wasn't like some weird thing to aspire to it Mm. was always an option and being a drinker was always an option because booze was everywhere you know that's interesting because i think with my family background because i had this um but we had an uncle who was actually, he was an uncle by marriage, my Uncle James, and he was married to my dad's sister. Now, my dad's sister, Auntie Grace, she couldn't stand booze because basically my Uncle James was a very, very heavy drinker. And he was a pipe major. He, he was the pipe major of the Rutherglen Pipe Band. And they used to come and stay with us. And I can remember my mum, who was also barely drank, because her family was pretty much teetotal. Um, so I had this kind of mix in the family, really. Um, but I can remember when, we, when I was in my teens, when my my uncle James would just say, "I'm just going out to stretch my legs," and he'd go out, he'd go for a walk, and then five hours later he wasn't back, and Mum would say, "Can you just nip down the road and see if he's at the pub?" And of course he would be, and then we'd carry him back, and then and he always used to do this thing about he'd he'd, he'd constantly be saying, "I love my wife." I love my wife. Oh, I love my wife. And like my mum would be saying to me, well, if you loved your wife, you wouldn't be going off to get hammered every day. And he'd, oh, but I love my wife. And it was like you saw this kind of conflict in my Auntie Grace, who was just, you know, passionately anti-alcohol uh, because she saw the damage it had done. And, 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 and Uncle James, who just, you know, he, he, he couldn't live without it. He just had to do it every day. and. Uh, it's kind of sad to watch. You know, and reading the book and realising how many people you've lost and how much pain there's been, the concentration of the amount of people you've lost and the amount of people who've, who've struggled in your family and your, you know, your grandparents, from your grandparents' time, it's an intense amount of, of upset and grief and sadness. Do you think so? Do you think so? I mean, I do, I've, certainly I've lost a lot of friends younger. You know, my best friend in journalism died when he was in his 30s, Philip. 
friend, best friend in politics died young. One of my best mates from university died young. I mean, most people have lost family and friends, haven't they? It's not, it doesn't feel yeah, overwhelming. I, it just, it just I'm feels. Good. I'm glad it doesn't. I'm glad it doesn't because you know it's not relative. It's not everyone. Everyone's life is their own life. Just like everyone's depression is their own, and there's a different shape for everyone. And you know, when you look at people's lives, it's difficult to judge you know it's easy to, to to look at people's lives and go oh they've got a great life or they've not got a great life and you know it's impossible to to judge that isn't it unless you're yeah. living that life yeah it's um you know you see people who it's why i get really angry when people talk about you know some people always talk about depression as though it's like a lifestyle choice you know well why why would he be depressed what's he got look look he's got a nice house got a nice car he's got a nice family it's got nothing to do with any of that no. Um, now, it might have something to do with that for the people who've got nothing. You know, the bit in the book where I, I talked to the guy who's taking magic mushrooms, Ian Roulier, I mean, he had such an awful childhood. It's almost like two plus two equals four when he explains to you why he gets really bad depression. So you can see maybe when people have had real pain in their life like that. But, you know, somebody like me who had, like I think, pretty good childhood, good family, um, you know, never really wanted for anything, and yet I get depression. It's got it's got nothing to do with the economics of it. I suppose the one good thing you could say about depression is it's not racist, sexist, or classist. <laughs> it's, about, it's about the only good thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I th- I think that it might be a bit racist and classist. It might be that it might be that poorer you know poorer people get it more. But I think down the years, down the centuries, it's probably gone un- undiagnosed. I don't know. You know, moving on from booze, but your personality and the way you've lived your life—do you do you feel that obviously booze wasn't the only addiction you've had? You know, in in the sense that you know, with you, sport or um, your work became, and you've talked talked about being a workaholic. So I know it's a, it's kind of a safe question. I'm just really prompting you to talk about that feeling of addiction in other areas of your life. Mm. You know, for instance, my my sons, who are they're twins and they're nine, this morning. Uh, Noah um, was crying in bed because he's got running club on Thursday and it's making him nervous and it's Monday because he's the best runner in the school. And I can't really help him because I've never been the best at anything. You know, with you and that life where you're in the frame, you know, you're absolutely in the frame and at the top of your game. Is that an addiction, do you think? I mean, I think that's why I think that's one of the reasons why I love sport so much. and I love a lot of the personalities in sport. I've just actually been reading um, Gareth Thomas, you know, the rugby player. Came out as gay eventually. And I'm reading his book. I, I know him reasonably well. I, I did soccer aid with him. I was on the Lions tour with him in 2005. And But what's really interesting is even though I know him and even though I've seen him close up over, you know, in quite an intense situation, when I read his book, I realise that even in those circumstances, you're getting a very superficial feel for how somebody is in those circumstances. So, and that's on a tour, a rugby tour with like 40 odd professional top level international rugby players, all with their own kind of thing going on, you know, and the coach having to try to sort of make sense of it. So your son, that is one 
way that somebody of talent will be managing their talent. And by the way, that, that could be a good way to manage it or a bad way to manage it. I, I say in the book, the, the thing about Sebastian Coe when he was at yeah. Moscow and the, he was like, you know, he lost the race he was meant to win and he won the race he wasn't meant to win. But I, 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 I quote the conversation he had with the sports psychologist who said to him between the, the two races, having lost the one that he was meant to win, when he was devastated, and the guy's saying, you know, we just need to create a normal environment. And Seb going absolutely mad and saying, don't ever fucking call me normal. <laughs> call me normal. I am not normal. Don't ever dare call me normal. And He said he, he said in it, didn't he? He said, this is madness. This is madness. Exactly. Yeah. Now, actually, yeah. It's, ma- it's madness for a nine-year-old to be making himself anxious on a Monday about something that's happening on Thursday. But that might be his way of keeping himself absolutely on his game. Some people yeah, need no. that anxiety to drive them. So um, just at a point where you're a decade out of your collapse, you're kind of going along well, Fiona and you are fine, and then you take a job which you know, which was with Blair, where you know you're going to dive into the, a cauldron of work which is going to really test you mentally and you know, and test your family and test everything. Mm. This is not a question which you probably get asked much, but was part of it financial? Was it like, oh my God, this is a great opportunity. I can turn our lives around for the family because, or was it purely oh, no, selfless? Not no, not at all. Because actually it, in terms of the, the finances of our life at the time, I mean, okay, I could look, it could have been a disaster is the first thing. You know, if you think about lots of people who've done jobs like that and they've kind of, they failed and they've gone nowhere and they've vanished. I didn't know that we were going to win three elections. I didn't know that I was going to become this sort of, you know, high profile figure uh, in our politics and, and which has led to a lot of the opportunities I've had since. I didn't know that. In fact, when we were discussing whether I was going to do it or not, one of the things on the kind of don't do it ledger was the fact that financially we were going to be much worse off. I was actually earning, you know, pretty good money at the time um, as a journalist and Fiona was working as well and that was going to have to go. And, you know, so, um, no, that was definitely definitely not that. But I think it was, I say in the book that I had these two, and it's really interesting how David, my psychiatrist, and Janine Austin, the woman you mentioned that I interviewed in the book about genetics, they both very quickly got to this was the heart of all my kind of, psychological struggles is this constant conflict i'm actually quite a selfish person in one way in that if i'm doing so if i'm on it you know nothing's going to get in my way and that's a very good example of it i mean everybody from you know fiona my parents fiona's fiona's family my closest friends they were all saying don't do it but i decided i've got to do it because the kind of the service bit of me yeah was saying put all that to one side, you've got to do it. You can't spend your whole life sort of raging at the Tories as I was as a journalist. And then when you get the chance actually genuinely to do something and to get rid of them, you turn it down. That was the sort of the, the big driver for me. But I knew it was a risk. And, and, I, and I do think that, you know, if Fiona was a, a weaker or different sort of person, I, I'm not sure we'd have survived. Yeah, I mean, she's an old lefty as well, isn't she? So, I mean, it's the rest of us, you know, it's all very well going on a couple of marches a year and not buying South African oranges and, you know, <laughs> having a history of left-wing <laughs> behaviour. But it's a different thing when you risk everything, you know? It's yeah. a different level of commitment. Yeah, it it's is, amazing. Isn't it? No, um, I, th- I, think, I think we, and I think particularly now the way that television is, the way that 
social media is and you know this sort of sense of life being about the moment i don't think it is about the moment i mean the only the only times when i really really feel that that life is about the moment and the only time i really let myself go is is at football and of course now that we're not allowed to do that because of covid it's really interesting how i've I've become less in, I, I do not follow football as closely as I did pre-COVID. Yeah. I'm not desperate to get to the games in the way that I was because I've been to some, because I do the commentary sometimes at Burnley for the website, I can get to the games if I want to. And I've been to some of the games and done the commentary, but I'm, I just don't enjoy it in the same way. Because actually what that is, what it's about for me is that's my place where I go for that sense of, right, I don't care who's watching me. I don't care who else is around me. When we score, I am going to go absolutely fucking mental. When <laughs> some, you know, overpaid uh, Chelsea player tries to elbow, is it? Right, when, when, yeah. when, when you know, when, when <laughs> do you remember yeah. when um, Ashley Barnes and Matic had a little bit of a, Yes. A little bit of a little bit of a flare up, right? Well, I was actually covering that game from the press box, and the, some of the other journalists made complaints about my behaviour. <laughs> so that's it. That's what football does for me. Um, well, it's very immediate, isn't it? That's you allowing yourself in the moment. Yeah. To live and the that only second. other time, the only other thing that does that for me is 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 music. So, like you know, playing my bagpipes or listening to music that I really like. I can get lost in that moment. But other than that, I think I'm always seeing life as a continuum and it's not about whether you're happy right now. Whether Because I think when people talk about happiness, they mean do they feel good? Well, you might feel good, but often I think happiness is, to me, is, is about the stuff that you remember. It's about the stuff yeah. that matters. Hello, my name's Beth Murray, and if you'd like to hear funny people talk about giving birth, then have I got the podcast for you. Poor Richard, he made the <laughs> schoolboy <laughs> error of standing up to see the baby while I was on the operating table, and I think that's really not recommended. <laughs> you were scarred for life, he was scarred for life. In the latest series of One Torn Every Minute, a whole labour ward of new guests tell me their birth stories in hilarious and graphic detail. Gas and air can suck my... That's One Torn Every Minute. Available now on all good podcast platforms. I suppose you wouldn't do it at all, would you, if you really thought about it? I've heard you discuss about people who are bipolar and it drives them, you know. Yeah. Talk about Martin Luther King or Churchill and mm. that being depressive gives you empathy and the manic side energises you. I, 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 I'm really interested in that and I think it's like, I'm not sure that it's not a character flaw, you know, to, for, for forgetting Trump's politics, but to want to be president at 70, to want to lead the world at 70. I'm like, bruv, have a game of golf, chill out, you know, right? Well, you know, you know, well, what are you doing? It? Do you know what I mean? I, I, and, and I know, Alistair, you know, you get over, a, you know, you've written your book and then you've promoted your book. And I know just from reading about you, I don't presume to know you, but I know you're thinking, what's next? What's the next project? What's the next massive project? You know, not like, the rest of us who go, you know, I might put a new fence up in the garden. Although you've spoken about it a lot, I think people who haven't heard it um, from you would be interested to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that there's um, there's something in that. I mean, I've always been a bit of a driven person. I've always had kind of workaholic tendencies. So if I do something, I really, I really go for it. And 
I think that does come from uh, an energy level that, you know, I'm not blowing my own trumpet here. I just think I've got more energy than most people. And I think that a lot of that comes from the kind of, you know, the, the manic side of the scale, as it were. And then I do think that the look, lots of people who don't get depression have got lots of empathy. I'm not saying it's kind of, you know, preconditioned, but I think there are that a lot of people who get depression and who get sort of mental illness, I think they do have a, a kind of deeper understanding of human pain or call it what you want. And I think that does give you a greater a greater empathy. Now, there is, there is a danger in that. I think that sometimes, you know, and I've been guilty of this in the past, I think, sometimes if you, you know, when you're in a bad way, you you become so self-obsessed that actually it's impossible to to be empathetic. But I, I think that, in general, speaking for myself and for a lot of other depressive people that I know, I think there is a greater empathy, and I think some of that comes from the depression. With that illness comes a drive and motivation and creativity that is undoubtable. You know, in politics or you know, in my profession, you know, there, I don't think there's a great actor who wasn't plagued with addiction and mental illness. I, I really don't. I mean, I really don't think there has been, hmm. and that's the cost. I think, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that about actors. I think the only actor who gets a mention in the book is Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. For the wrong, well, not for the wrong reasons, but for being in that. No, no I mean, he was, brilliant. he was brilliant in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. incredible Nets. performance. We're that talking is. about um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, guys, yeah. and just about how that is most people's understanding of mental illness or a hospital, you know. No, and, and, and he, he his performance in that film was so brilliant that it just had this, it's still got this cultural hole, which is not very healthy. Uh, I don't blame him for that, but but it, but it was um, it was absolutely brilliant. What was the hospital your brother was in for a long time? That Netley, yeah, Netley. That I mean, that's most people's imagined Netley, isn't it? The... Yeah, absolutely. What was really interesting about Netley, I think, because in the end, Donald didn't hate the army. He, he it was a, it was a military psychiatric hospital. It's no longer there, but so I was actually quite nice about it and. You know, I said it was, imagine one flew of the cuckoo's nest with uniforms. It was, it was military, but actually I got, I got quite a lot of feedback, including from somebody who's very, very, very well known in the world of psychiatry, who sent me an email and he said, you were far too kind about Netley. He says it was one of the worst psychiatric institutions I've ever known in my life. Really? But I sort of felt it, it was a harsh place because it was military. And I say in the book, it was a time when, if you wanted to get you to get out of the army, you had to buy yourself out. Yeah. And the thing was that, that I think one of the nurses admitted to me that they were always on the lookout for people who were trying to get invalided out of the army yeah. uh, as a way of avoiding having to buy themselves out. And, but with Donald, I mean, I don't think there was any doubt at all. He was ill. He was very ill. Your reality and your your understanding of, of life and love and family is just riddled with hospital visits and depression through the rest of the family. And it's, it's just, yeah. it's. No, I guess, I guess that, I mean, I don't know if we had more than our fair share. I don't know. Talk about, you know, very ill children. You know, I mean, it's, that's the, that's the major fear, I guess, as you, as you, as a dad growing up is when the children are born, are they going to be I, okay? I, They're going to have five fingers, five toes. <clears throat> yeah. We've got, a, you know, we've got a friend who, who Lindsay Nicholson, who's lost, uh, lost her husband, to leukemia, then lost a daughter to leukemia. I don't know how you get over that. I don't know how you ever go over that. And, and you know, I don't doubt she thinks about it every single day. So I think that we've not had that. We've got three kids and, okay, 
they've had their own struggles along the way, but they're, they're fit and healthy and they're doing well, you know. So I, I sort of feel we've been pretty lucky, really. Yeah. You talk about that. We talk, we've talked about loss and stuff, and you say about, I think it was um, in the eulogy for... for Lackey. Lackey. He was your cousin. And it says, you know, it's only because we've loved that we feel such pain and the love merits the pain that follows its loss, which I think is perfect. Amazing. Well, that's yeah, because I think that he, I mean, Lucky's, um, so he was my dad's brother's son, uh, one of three, and they lived in the in Tyree, the island where my dad came from. So, in a way, my dad was the one who left and built his life elsewhere, and his brother, Uncle Hector, he was the one who stayed there and ran the family croft. And, and actually, one of Lucky's children has just bought the family, the family croft oh. to keep it in the family. And the three kids, uh, Lackey's three children, who are now grown up, they were, you know, they were teens in their teens when when he killed himself. And you know, I've talked to them about it, and 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 I think it's any child whose parent takes their own life. I think you're bound to think, oh, well, I can't have been good enough for him. You're bound to think that. And so, I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to write about him in the book was I think that. You know, I don't know because I wasn't with him and I didn't, you know, I don't know what was going through his head when he when he killed himself. But I know, having had suicidal ideation myself, that one of the most powerful instincts that you have when you're feeling like that is to think, I'll make life better for the kids if I do this. You know, it's, I know it's an irrational thought, but that's how you think. And I yeah. guarantee, well, I don't know, I can't guarantee it, but I'd be very surprised. Suspect. If Lucky wasn't thinking, the kids would be better off without me. I'll give yeah. them a break. I'll give them a rest from this because it's too yeah. much for them to deal with. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I help this. You know, I work as a Samaritan, so we had those phone calls all the time, and that, and you know, that is a constant. You know, a constant is that obviously there are very lonely people who are totally isolated, but a lot of people who are having suicidal thoughts are you know surrounded by people who love them, and it's very hard for people who don't understand uh, a level of depression or a, a, a tendency to that, that they don't understand that they, that they could feel that. In fact, weirdly in the prison, just this week I was in the prison talking to one of the listeners that we we're training up and he's not going to make it onto the, uh, to become a listener because he kept saying, bruv, we, we were doing like one-to-ones and he'd go, bruv, bruv, it's your children. They're going to carry the coffin. How do you think they're going to feel? And you're like, it's not, <laughs> not quite the thing, you know, mate. And he'd go, you know, you've yeah. got a mother, what's she going to do? And it, and it's, I totally understand that. And, you know, as a, and it's really interesting because I spend all the time listening to people and being empathetic and understanding it. And then when my mum says, you know, she goes, Jay, I'm, I'm done. I, I just want to go. I'm like, what are you talking about? You've got so much. What about the grandchildren? It's like, yeah. it's so funny when it's personal, it's different, you know, when it's someone. Well, like, yeah, but that, but that, that's often the case. It's like, you know, you, I'm sure you get the same. You get asked all the time, you know, what advice would you give somebody who's struggling? What would you advise give the families? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I say it in the book that when it came to, to Callum going through alcoholism, I made all the same mistakes that people made with me when I was going through it. Because you can have all the theory in the world and you can have all the kind of but when it's your own kid, you just you know, once you've got that feeling of I don't know what to do, I'm I, I frightened, aren't you? Yeah. You just and you end up doing you end up doing the, the, the kind of alcoholic equivalent of what you just said. Well, listen, Alistair, I could talk to you forever. For what it's worth, mate, you've, um, 
you've reignited an old comrade and I'm ready to go to war again. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to put that T-shirt on. You're going to put a T-shirt on. I've got it on now. I've got I'm it on now if we were on Zoom. I'm going, to, I'm going to like a tweet. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't mind me quoting something that I know is personal to you for the end, just to sort of finish this off, and it's from Paradise Lost. And the quote is, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell the hell of heaven. Yeah. Well, listen, it's been lovely to talk to you. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes. 